From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. The United States has long considered itself the world's bastion of democracy. However, independent analysis currently doesn't support that belief, and the Economist Intelligence Unit's annual democracy index has rated the U.S. a flawed democracy for the past several years. In 2020's index, the U.S. was rated 25th in the world, behind nations including Norway, Canada, and Costa Rica. Today, we're talking about democratic backsliding in the U.S. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Augustina Girardi. Augustina is a professor in the School of International Service. She's the author of a couple of books, including one titled Democrats and Autocrats, which I'm sure we'll be drawing on today. Augustina, thank you for joining Big World. Thank you, Kay. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes, that's, this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Augustina, after the 2020 election, Politico asked you whether the U.S.'s institutions proved durable during the Trump years or whether they failed, and you gave the U.S. system a grade of C. So please tell me what led you to give us that somewhat mediocre grade. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our students would say. Uh, yeah. Um, so basically, when assessing the quality of democracy in any country, um, you would look at two different components at the very least, the electoral dimension of democracy and the liberal component um, of democracy. So electoral component of democracy refers to basically the quality of elections, uh, the attack on the integrity of those elections. And so we saw that on that component, the U.S. has been doing quite uh, poorly. Um, we should remember that Trump began to threaten the results of the elections back in 2016. So this was new, not only in 2020. And of course, then we have the 2020 elections in which he refused to concede. Um, and in terms of the liberal component, we also see a very steep decline as well. Liberal component refers to checks and balances. And we see uh, that encroachments and attacks on the media and on Congress and the Supreme Court and other branches at lower levels of government at the state and local levels were attacked during the Trump uh, presidency. There is um, another aspect to, to consider when assessing democracy, which is how he treated the bureaucracy. And as we all know, the bureaucracy was packed with friends and family. Um, and several uh, departments were also severely attacked um, and uh, monopolized by him, such as the Justice Department. So all those components um, were downgraded quite significantly, and therefore I gave it a Z. So you mentioned the, the cronyism and the nepotism and the bureaucracy. Political appointments are a part of our, of our, of our bureaucracy, of our, our state and national government. What was it that made the Trump appointees so different? Because I think there have been to greater or lesser degrees, there have always been examples of people in positions that they were unqualified for. Was it the extent to which that happened? Was it the, the critical mass of people? Was it the corruption or perceived corruption? 
I mean, uh, here I, I would not say anything about competency because maybe these people were very competent. But when thinking about how a president deals with the bureaucracy, there are two, at least in political science, two very different ways. One is the classical patrimonial nepotism way of appointing your um, your bureaucrats. Another one is uh, one based on legal rationale. Um, components. And what we see during the Trump administration, this is comparable to what we saw in other countries, such as the Dominican Republic under the Trujillo government, for instance, is that the key posts in the bureaucracy were appointed by family and, and friends, right? And not only that, that uh, there were huge purges as well from technocrats with very long careers that were asked kindly and sometimes not that kindly to step down. And we have not seen that before um, in the US. So it's true, as you said, that every politician appoints loyalists. That is what politics is all about. But the extent to what, to uh, in which this happened was uh, quite different from what we had seen in the past and very similar to what we would find in other countries which have a more weakened uh, democracy. So after four years of rhetoric and actions that many scholars have deemed damaging to American democracy, Donald Trump did lose the 2020 election. And as you mentioned, he refused to concede or commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And I think that up until then, this was just one more thing we'd always been used to in the U.S. Yeah. The, the loser calls the winner. They say, congratulations, you won. Good luck. They get off the phone. They cry. Do they do whatever they need to do? <laughs> but it doesn't really serve any official purpose, and the Constitution doesn't require it. So why do you think that refusal of his to concede has been so damaging either to the democratic process or to the perceptions of it? Well, I mean, I think that what we saw starting again, and I don't want to focus only on the 2020 election. This started in 2016, remember, when he was already uh, threatening the integrity of the institutions back when he was competing against uh, Hillary Clinton. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically, Trump has had a tradition of eroding the integrity of democratic institutions. And this has huge implications uh, for the trust of citizens on those institutions. Once you go that, that route, it's very hard to come back. It's very, very hard to convince 70 million of Americans who believed that Trump's election had been stolen, that the next elections, either at the local, state, or national level, are going to be just unfair. Right. And so the, the, the damage might not be um, quite telling right now, but I see this as a huge problem for the future. And, and the example that comes to mind is that of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So Mexico for 70 years was ruled by the PRI, which monopolized power. And uh, there was a huge distrust in elections. That was one of the big problems of the Mexican politi political system. Those elections were rigged. Uh, they were very fraudulent. So it was the opposite of the U.S. But the point I want to make is that there was a lot of mistrust on elections. And it took quite a number of decades to restore that trust in elections. And it took, I mean, the agreement of both the incumbent party and the opposition parties 
to create an independent oversight agency that would take care of elections so that these elections would be trusted again. This was achieved after several electoral cycles. And here, maybe it's also important to to focus beyond uh, what Trump did, right? So it's not only Trump. Trump is gone, or Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe he comes back. But for the time being, he's no longer um, an important actor um, as he was a couple of months ago. But you have the Republican Party who continues to mistrust and distrust those elections. And that, to me, is the most worrying part and the one that has the the higher potential uh, to damage the democratic process next year, the year after, even before uh, 2024. And we know that sowing this type of doubt on election results is a tactic that is used by autocratic rulers. And I'm wondering if you could give us a greater sense of why this tactic is so successful. Why is it, why is it, why is it so easy to convince people that, that, that there's a a large system, a conspiracy that is against you know, a person and all of their followers? And why why do they go back to this tactic again and again? Uh-huh. Uh, I would say that the intention of autocrats, autocrats uh, is not to sow, sow doubts um, on elections and the results, but to discredit elections altogether, mm-hmm. and especially elections that have not led autocrats victorious. And here, there's something that um, distinguishes the U.S. from other autocracies, which is that it's very rare to find an autocrat who loses an election. Mm -hmm. In this regard, Trump is very unique. Autocrats around the world, like Putin, Erdogan, Maduro, or Fujimori in Peru in the 1990s, always, always systematically won elections. Mm -hmm. So Trump is an exception to this rule. He is probably the first populist anti-democratic president who has lost um, an election. So typically autocrats uh, try to steal elections when they are weak. And this is what we have seen in the case of the U.S., so I would say that autocrats, they only try to uh, saw doubts on and discredit elections when they are weak and the chances of them losing are very high. But what Trump did was quite the opposite of what other autocrats, stro- strong autocrats do around the world, which is that they continue to be in power for many consecutive terms. Um, here, I mean, I don't know if the U.S. is going to have another autocrat in the future, uh, but this autocrat, um, if we want to call him like that, uh, who was in power, was a rather weak one, even though he did a lot of damage, of course, but he was relatively weak compared to other autocrats. Augustina Gerardi, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and change the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. We're talking about nothing less than the future of democracy in the U.S. So what are the first five things you would do to help mend American democracy? (laughs) Uh, First, I would get rid of the Electoral College. Second, I would get rid of the small states 
bias in the Senate. Uh, third, I would strengthen democratic institutions at the subnational level, that is at the state and local levels where I see the main threat to democracy today. Fourth, I would increase the number of political parties. Um, this is the only democracy in the world that has this degree of religious, racial and ethnic diversity, but it only has two political parties. And that would help to reduce the levels of polarization and also increase representation of all voices. Fifth, I would try to do as much as I can to advance the agenda on governance of the online platforms, uh, broadly speaking. And six, if I may, Puerto Rico and DC need to become states. Wonderful, that's quite a list. People in Wyoming and the <laughs> board of Facebook won't like it, but I like it, thank you. Augustina, on January 6th of this year, 2021, Trump continued this rhetoric at the Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C., and we all are familiar with what happened there. After the deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol that followed that rally, Trump was impeached in the House of Representatives on a charge of inciting an insurrection, but he was acquitted in the Senate on February 13th. In your opinion, what do the riot and then the subsequent acquittal of Trump, of basically the Senate saying, yeah, this was bad, but it wasn't bad enough for us to actually act. What do those two things together mean for this country going forward? So first of all, I think that in particular, the riot, it showed that American democratic institutions can be attacked quite easily. <laughs> I also think that uh, it showed that democracy is not protected by the fact that there are strong institutions in this country, right? That democracy um, could be attacked. Um, and this, we should not forget, this happened in the country that has been celebrated as the oldest, strongest democracy in the world. And yet this happened. Uh, but I would like to put emphasis on two other aspects beyond Trump, because I feel that when we talk about democratic backsliding in the U.S., we tend to focus too much on Trump, which, mm -hmm. of course, he did a lot of damage. Uh, but there are two other um, issues that I would like to, to highlight. First of all, the, the role of the Republican Party. And the second one, it, it is, is what's going on at the subnational level, at the local and state level. So regarding the first one, the role of the Republican Party, there is a lot of um, evidence and writing that the Republican Party has become an anti-democratic uh, uh, party. We should not forget that 147 Republicans in the House voted to over overturn the election's results on January 6th. And later on, as you said before, we have a bunch of senators who um, uh, acquitted the president. The anti-democratic role of the Republican Party and of those elected politicians is something that we should watch with some uh, concern, not because of the ideological reasons, right? So we can have different ideologies, Democrats and, uh, and Republicans, but there is a consistent uh, anti-democratic stance by the Republican Party, by those uh, politicians who are elected, that is uh, worrisome, not only to me, to many other uh, scholars as well. And related to that, uh, we, I mean, Trump is gone. So mm -hmm. it seems that the American democracy has endured. 
But yet, when we look at what's going on at the state level, things are not that good, honestly. And actually, uh, if we look back at what state legislators have been doing since November, we should not forget that the majority of the state legislators have been won by uh, Republicans. We see a lot of bills that have been passed to systematically erode the quality of democratic institutions, from uh, voter suppression to preventing people uh, to uh, protest in the street, the bill that was passed by the Kentucky Senate. So there are a bunch of initiatives at the state level that are contributing to democratic backsliding in this country. Um, so I think that the discussion should move beyond Trump and look at the parties that we have and also at the politics at the subnational level. And I think that is another indication of a trend in the in the U.S., we've talked on previous episodes of the podcast with other guests about the imperial presidency and the, the move of the U.S. towards this presidency that seems a bit more powerful than maybe the founders intended. Nonetheless, the the conversation does tend to get laid at the, at the president's feet, whoever he is. And it's always been a heedle now, but at some point <laughs> it won't be. Um, so given all that and, and that President Biden has come in with a to-do list that I think rivals any previous president. I mean, there have been presidents who came in in times of, of great hardship and strife, but I don't know that, quote unquote, saving democracy was necessarily on many of their lists, but it, it's on his. So what can President Biden do, in your opinion, to help alleviate the damage that's been done to American democracy during his predecessor's tenure? And then a little bit larger, how can the new Biden administration, the larger group of people, help restore democratic norms in this country? That's that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I'll have an answer, but I think that first thing that he has to do is to renew confidence and trust in political institutions. Um, and how? By being transparent, by telling the truth, by having an open government that is subject to scrutiny. And those are things that he has been emphasizing over and over again in the majority of the speeches that he has um, given. So I think that uh, recreating the trust on political institutions um, is key. A particular effort has to be put in making elections trustworthy again. And here I would like to uh, go back to the, to the example of Mexico in which this um, autonomous um, agency was created, created to protect the integrity of elections. It was an agency that was made up of experts, non-political um, actors, and eventually it recreated the trust on institutions. Um, and then the other thing that I would like to highlight is the new bill that was introduced um, uh, by the House. It's now in the Senate, which seeks to um, undo all the restrictions that states have imposed to restrict democracy. There is a lot that can be done at the federal level to prevent democratic backsliding at the state level. And so this new bill, it aims, for instance, to impose um, national requirements that weak, uh, that weaken uh, restrictive state voter ID laws. Um, it mandates automatic voter re registration. It also expands early and mail-in voting. Uh, so there are a bunch of things that at the national level can be done 
to uh, strengthen the um, the institutions at, at the state level. Uh, I don't know if that uh, bill is going to be approved by the Senate. Probably not. But initiatives like this one uh, can be very helpful to um, restore democratic norms in the country towards the future. So for my last couple of questions, I will just admit that these are both really about making Americans feel better, uh, which I know a lot of us <laughs> would like to feel better after yeah. everything that's happened. Are there any aspects of democracy in the U.S. that differentiate this country from other countries in which we see serious democratic backsliding? So are there other examples where we can say we're doing better on some on some measures. Yes, there are. I mean, this country has an incredibly strong media uh, that has weathered all the attacks that uh, Donald Trump um, could possibly uh, done. The media continues to be very strong, very diverse, of course. Um, the strength of courts continues to be uh, quite amazing. So even though Donald Trump has packed the courts with both at the state level and the national level with uh, loyalists, uh, the courts continue to be uh, very strong. So I see some accountability there that is, um, that is very important and that we do not see in other countries where democ democracy is backsliding. So we talked about the uh, perceptions that there was something wrong with the election. And, and we threw out the number of people that voted for former President Trump, more than 70 million people. Mm -hmm. And how you, first of all, convince that number of people that something is corrupt. And then how do you then convince them that it's not? So you mentioned the media, you mentioned the courts, and those are both institutions that big swaths of that Trump coalition feel are sort of not relevant or not, uh, not valid on the face. So how do you think it is possible or is it possible through our democratic institutions, through policy, through reform, to convince people, to convince Americans that our system of government is sound and it's worth choosing. Because I think democracy is a choice and everybody has to choose it every day. So how do we convince our fellow citizens to keep choosing it over the alternative? Yeah, I think that here the key is to reduce polarization, right? So one of the distinctive features of the U.S., and this is not only uh, a problem that we see in the U.S., we see this happening in Europe, we see this happening in Brazil, we see this happening in Argentina, the high levels of polarization that exist. Uh, those are probably the worst for, um, for democracy, and they are the worst for convincing people that... Uh, what they have been told is a, is a lie. So if I were to advise what to do in that regard, I would strongly uh, tell whomever is in charge of that to try to really um, lower levels of polarization. And there are a couple of ways in which you can do that. So uh, one is to introduce more governance to the online world 
I mean, I think that there are a bunch of things that need to be done on that area. Um, there are other reforms um, in the party system that would be good to reduce levels of polarization and to make everybody feel more incorporated in the, in the political arena. And therefore, those people, uh, once they feel that they are incorporated, they will start trusting uh, the institutions. So if I were to have a magic wand, that would be one. I would have more parties. So I was very happy when I heard that Trump was going to have his own party, for instance. Mm -hmm. I know that Republicans uh, see this as a disadvantage, but that, that would be great in the same way that uh, a split in the Democratic Party it would be great to have four parties that represent different ideologies and therefore everybody has a say in government and we can start trusting institutions um, again. Augustina Gerardi, thank you for joining Big World to discuss democratic backsliding. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Kay. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, it'll be like a popsicle that doesn't melt on your hand. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. Mm-hmm.